0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, and I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, hey, this is part two of a two-parter on Louis and Auguste Lumiere, two brothers who contributed significantly to the motion picture industry uh, before there even was a motion picture industry. That's what they're mostly famous for, but they went on to do some other things, which is largely what we're talking about today. But if you have not listened to part one, we highly recommend you do so. Otherwise, you're probably going to be lost. Yeah, we have um, two-parters sometimes that each part can stand on their own, but this that would be harder with this one. Yeah, this is definitely a continuation of right where we left off. Uh So last time... We ended at the point where the Lumieres had developed a camera that could capture, process, and project motion pictures. And they had trained a group of employees to use the new technology so they could travel around Europe, showing off this marvel of innovation and taking new movies.
0: Right. So, it wasn't long before the brothers were sending their trained cameramen farther and farther afield, going outside of Europe... Because the cinematograph was relatively compact and light, it was pretty easy to expand their filming and demonstration presence all across the globe. They sent teams to India, Great Britain, Canada, and Argentina. And these were not small numbers of cameramen. In the United States alone, the Lumieres had almost two dozen of their men doing what they had been doing in Europe by the late 1890s.
1: Yeah, so they were just taking these movies, showing them to people, uh... And some of these staff members were actually sent abroad as part of deals with businessmen in foreign countries. So as part of these contracts, the Lumieres would basically loan out their camera, but the partner business would have to pay a Lumiere company staff member as a contractor to actually use the camera. So it was like, you can have it come to where you are and take films, but you can't use it. (laughs) Only our trained cameramen can use it. And then the partner business could then stage their own screenings of these films that were taken, and the revenue from those screenings would be split 50-50 between the um, the business that was renting the camera and paying for the cameraman and the Lumiere company. Eventually, this whole partnership system became too
0: unwieldy to manage, so the Lumieres finally started selling the cameras outright. Starting in May 1897, the cameras and film were sold first to businesses and then to anyone who wanted them. Lumiere's also began publishing a catalog of all the films they had to offer for purchase so anyone could start their own entertainment business by showing these short films.
1: Yeah, you could basically say you had a, a big space, I would like to get a cinematograph and order the following 10 films or whatever, and then you could charge people admission and voila, you had your own movie theater running. In some demonstrations abroad in the early days of this, the company actually experimented with presentation style, and so they hired speakers to stand to the side of the screen and explain to audiences what they were seeing. But it was immediately evident that that was just silly and the explainer was extraneous. No one really needed to be told, and a train is coming at you. A baby (laughs) is being fed here. Right? Especially when you consider how basic their titles were. (laughs) The workers leaving a factory so here are
0: the workers leaving the factory <laughs> just as their fame had spread in europe in the united states the lumieres were heralded as geniuses the slates of films that were shown at any given screening were a combination of movies featuring local and international scenes and that menu proved to be the perfect balance to delight and excite viewers
1: But, as you can also imagine, a French firm stealing the thunder of someone like Edison and his kinetoscope in Edison's own home country was problematic. And there was also this growing sentiment in the United States that American innovation should be prioritized. As we know
0: from the War of the Currents, Edison was not timid in going after his rivals. He started a campaign to discredit the work of the Lumieres while promoting his own motion picture technology. Edison had bought the rights to the phantoscope projectors from Francis Jenkins and Thomas Armat, and was working on his own film screenings. It's actually a whole patent story between Jenkins, who invented the phantoscope, pan- the and Armat, who financed it. But that is really a tale for another day, as is the entire War of the Currents. Yeah, which has been touched on before. Uh, oh, wait, there's by a, previous host. Yeah, there's a two-parter in it. I think it's a yeah. two-parter.
1: Yeah. But the bottom line here is that the Lumiere's agents in the United States started to experience one problem after another as they attempted to continue touring because Edison's sort of smear campaign was really quite successful. So eventually, customs officials started claiming that the French cameras had been brought into the country without proper documentation. And at one point, one of the Lumiere's cameramen was actually jailed on a charge of filming without a permit. As the climate of the United States grew increasingly unwelcoming for the Lumiere's
0: cameramen, the company finally decided to halt all efforts in North America in late 1897. And it was, to some degree, beginning of the end of the Lumiere's work
1: in film. They did make a few more movies. Uh, In 1898, they actually had more than 1,400 different movies in their catalog, most of which had been shot by those traveling cameramen that they had trained. And for the next two years, they did continue to work on developing and refining film technology, but that part of their business was no longer really growing and, in fact, was kind of shrinking. They were shooting fewer and fewer films each year.
0: The last big demonstration the Lumieres made in motion pictures was at the 1900 Exposition Universelle in Paris. It's come up pretty frequently on the podcast. Lumieres were featured as part of the expo and they had a screening there. As part of their screening, which featured a mix of footage shot there at the expo and films their team had made traveling through Mexico, they also debuted a new large-scale screen. The Library of Congress has digitized master edit of much of this footage online, and we'll link to it in our show notes. Heads up, there are some movies in this group that feature activities that could definitely be considered animal cruelty.
1: Yeah, uh, there's some cockfighting in there and there are some horses being treated sort of poorly. So if that is stuff that is not for you, maybe don't look at these ones. But you can look at their other earlier films.
0: And which also include lots of spanking
1: as a reminder. Right. If that also, right. <laughs> yeah. Which I will say, though, is some of the least least aggressive spanking I've ever seen. So if you're worried about seeing someone get hit, it's definitely very much on the mild side. Um, after that Paris Expo, both Louis and Auguste, turned back to photography to some degree. So throughout their foray into motion pictures, their family business had continued to run and to thrive. It was still funding all of these little uh, expenditures to train people and send them abroad and also for them to experiment and try new things. And as you recall, the motion picture work that they did was really intended as a way to sell new cameras and film that then turned into this temporary foray into movie production. They never intended to be a film studio, but they were for a brief period of time. And by 1900, competition in the motion picture space was only getting more intense, and the brothers just wanted to move on to other things.
0: The Lumieres soon began to work on other projects outside of motion pictures, and that is what we will talk about in a moment. But first, we're going to pause for a quick sponsor break.
1: The same year of the Paris Expo, but at the end of the year, on December 29th, 1900, Louis filed another patent. This time it was for a device called a Photorama. And this was a method for taking full 360-degree still panoramic photos in one long exposure. And these panoramic images were intended to be projected, but again, to be static.
0: Meanwhile, there was a long-desired achievement in still photography that the brothers had yet to crack.
1: So while the Lumieres had made millions thanks to their blue label plates, and they had captured incredible film of real life in motion pictures, one goal that had been kind of on their minds for quite a while had remained elusive, and that was creating a photographic process that could reproduce images of the world as they're truly seen with the human eye in full color.
0: Just as was true with motion pictures, they were not the only people working on this idea. And indeed, other innovators were trying their hand at color photography. Some were actually successful at creating color images, but the processes were really labor-intensive and cumbersome, so they weren't really viable. Photographers would either have to take three different exposures or use three
1: different cameras and then composite the resulting images. But on December 17th of 1903, the Lumieres applied for a patent on a color photography system that they called autochrome. On May 30th, 1904, they debuted it at the Académie des Sciences. And for the next several years, the brothers worked on refining their process before they finally presented it before the Paris Photo Club in 1907 to introduce it commercially.
0: Incidentally, 1907 was also the last
1: year that the Lumieres published their catalog of films. So surprisingly, perhaps, the key to the Lumiere's color photo system was potato starch. They dyed fine grains of starch in three colorways, a red-orange, a green, and a violet. And then these fine grains were combined and then applied in a fine layer to a glass plate. And I keep saying the word fine, but they were very, very fine. So there were 7,000 grains per square millimeter in their plate application. And then a sticky varnish of lamp black was used to fill in any spaces between the grains. This plate was compressed with
0: seven tons of pressure per square centimeter. The plate was treated with a silver bromide emulsion. So when a photo was taken, the potato starch grains filtered out all the light, but that which corresponded to the color it was dyed. This is ingenious. The light then passed through the grains onto the light-sensitive emulsion and created a glass transparency from which prints could be made. This made the autochrome system the first commercially
1: successful color photography process. This was a massive shift in the world of photography. For one, obviously, it made color work achievable. But for another, it completely changed the way photographers approached their work. The exposure that was needed for an autochrome image was a bit longer than a black and white image would require. It was longer than a second, I think. Um, so most photographers primarily worked with still subjects initially. And also sometimes a yellow filter had to be used on the camera's lens when they were shooting outside in daylight because otherwise the blue sky was overwhelming. And so they had to balance that out with a little bit of yellow.
0: The new level of depth offered by Autochrome also meant that photographers had to relearn their craft. Part of this learning curve was understanding and predicting what colors would actually be captured in the photographic process, because this really wasn't a system that faithfully captured true-to-life color. If you look at Autochrome images, they have a pretty distinctive and recognizable color palette. Uh, but the images that resulted from photographers experimenting with this new medium were so uniquely beautiful that they caused concerns that painting would soon fall out of favor.
1: Yeah, we um include one as part of our show art. But if you go looking around for autochrome images online, they are spectacularly beautiful. And you can see why there might have been a little bit of concern in the art world that their jobs were in jeopardy. But part of that concern for painters and their job security, uh, it's interesting, actually came from the way that errors looked on autochrome photographs. So in instances where the subjects moved slightly during that slightly prolonged exposure period, it actually produced this really lush looking painterly effect. Autochrome became the standard in photography,
0: and it remained so for more than two decades. In 1914, National Geographic printed its first color photo of a garden of blooming flowers taken in Belgium, and it
1: was made using Autochrome. And it actually was not until the 1930s that other processes, such as Kodak's Kodachrome, supplanted Autochrome. So just as the Lumiere's motion picture cameras had offered a more portable option for creating films, Kodachrome was able to offer a more portable way for color photos to be made. So with Autochrome, even though it had been a huge advancement, uh, photographers still had to carry cases of glass plates, which could be a little bit cumbersome. But all a photographer needed to shoot Kodachrome was a small camera and their film. So it really was, again, another big step towards portability.
0: In the 1930s, as new color photography options were hitting the market, Louis once again turned to the cinema this time to try to find a way to marry color with motion pictures. He exhibited this work at the Paris Exposition of 1937, but it was never developed into a commercial product. While the exact reason Lumiere's color motion picture process never went into production is not entirely known, World War II probably played a part.
1: Yeah, there is some speculation that had he been able to put this in production and take it around the globe as they had with their cinematograph, that he probably could have given Technicolor a run for its money. Um, but, uh, in 1939, Louis was tapped to participate in what would have been the first Cannes Film Festival as its president. But once again, uh, World War II was a problem. In late August, as the festival's September 1st date approached, Europe was in the grip of conflict. People had already begun arriving in Cannes on August 23rd when the German-Soviet Non-Aggression Pact was signed. And that made it immediately clear that things were getting very unstable and that the event really could not proceed as planned. And by the time the festival was officially canceled on August 27th, pretty much everyone that had come into Cannes anticipating the festival had already left.
0: During the occupation of France by German troops, Louis Lumiere moved from Lyon to Bendel. Under Philippe Pétain, who was Marshal of France at the time, Louis served as the science representative on Pétain's advisory council. He did not stay in this council for very long, though. He resigned and returned to Bandol. And in
1: his later years, Louis was given a multitude of honors for his contributions to photography and motion pictures. He was a member of the Institute of Optics, the National Office of Inventions, and the National Conservatory of Arts and Trades. He was made the Honorary President of the French Chamber of Cinema and the President of the French Society of Physics. Louis Lumiere died in Vendôme on June 6, 1948. Next up, we will talk about what Louis's brother Auguste worked on after the brothers
0: transitioned away from the cinematograph, but not until so we have one more quick word from a sponsor. <music>
1: Had stayed in the family business, Auguste Lumiere made a rather drastic career change in the early 1900s. He had always been interested in chemistry, and he was undoubtedly incredibly influential in the family business in that regard. Figuring out color photography almost certainly involved a lot of work on his part as well as his brothers. But what he was truly interested in was actually biochemistry. So he started to study medicine. One of his efforts in the medical
0: field that brought him acclaim was his interest in the healing process and developing new ways to treat wounds. During World War I, he examined the wounds of hundreds of injured men, and he also studied scarring and healing in dogs to further his research. We don't personally know the details of how these dogs were wounded. but and
1: I do not want to. No,
0: <laughs> Well, and medical
1: experiments involving dogs were not uncommon at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh But he did use that that research to really get a lot of information about how uh, tissues would heal themselves. And in 1915, he applied his wound research to the development of a bandage called a tul gras, which translates to oily gauze. And this sterile bandage was impregnated with Vaseline and balsam of Peru, so it wouldn't stick to wounds, though it was, of course, not absorbent. So if you also needed an absorbent bandage, you needed to have two. But Toul Gras dressings are actually still used today. Uh, And Auguste also devoted a great deal of his time in medical research to colloidal solutions to disinfect wounds. So he really actually did have quite an impact on wound management.
0: From 1914 to 1953, Auguste Lumière wrote more than a dozen books based on his medical research covering not only wounds and how to treat them, but also tuberculosis and cancer, among others. Auguste Lumière died six years after his younger brother on April tenth, 1954, at his home in Lyon. Uh,
1: You'll often see a lot of comments in biographies or um, articles about the two of them that by the end of his life, people knew Auguste Lumière for his medical work, and they had often not made the connection that he was one of the Lumieres that had worked in film because he was so completely ensconced in the medical community by that point. And even though the Lumières abandoned motion pictures, they also inspired one of the first motion picture storytellers, Georges Millier. And when the Lumières had demonstrated their films in Paris very early on, Millier, who was a magician and a theater manager, had seen them. We're talking like in the 1895 period. Uh, and he was completely blown away by the possibilities that this new technology offered. And while the Lumiere's films were pretty basic and generally more on the documentary side, Millier began to immediately dream of crafting fantastical tales that could be projected on screens.
0: He begged Auguste Lumiere to sell him a cinematograph, but there was just no convincing the man to do it. Lumiere told Melier, you should be grateful since although my invention is not for sale, it would undoubtedly ruin you. It can be exploited for a certain time as a scientific curiosity, but apart from that, it has no commercial future
1: whatsoever. Oh, Auguste. <laughs> <laughs> I want, this is like that moment, you know how often people will ask us, like, if we do live shows and we do Q&A, if you could travel anywhere in time, where would you go? I think going forward, my answer has to change. And it is, I would go and I would scoop Auguste Lumiere up and I would take him to 2017 and I would say, Rogue One made a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and then just watch him go, whoops. Um, yeah, of course, this happened before they had started offering the mass-produced cinematograph for sale. But it is interesting that initially he was just like, no, no, don't go into film. It's a, it's a dead end. Uh, it offers some insight, this interaction, as to why the Lumieres were not especially concerned with an ongoing business venture in motion pictures. They really thought they were going to get in make a bunch of money in ticket sales while this idea was still a novelty, and then get out, which is what they did, but they abandoned a really lucrative business.
0: But of course, Millier did get his hands on a camera, though not a Lumiere camera. He started making films that really broke open the world of fictional narratives. While fictional stories had been told on film before, through animated characters, Millier was really the first one to tell fictional stories by filming actors. He made his first film, Playing Cards, in 1896. But it's Millier's 1902 film, La Voyage de la Lune, or A Trip to the Moon, that remains one of the most famous pieces of early cinema. That's the one where the spaceship crashes
1: into the eye of the moon. Uh, Yeah, that's one of those pieces. And sometimes you'll actually see, I know I have a couple of times seen um, A Trip to the Moon, uh, Miss accredited to the Lumiere's and not Millier. Uh, Sometimes that's been confused. I think most people that know anything about cinema will get it right. Yeah, I I have definitely seen it listed incorrectly before.
0: I don't think I've seen it listed incorrectly, but I have heard
1: I have heard people say it incorrectly. Yeah. Um, and of course, even though filmmaking technology has evolved significantly and the Lumiere's inventions were replaced by others that improved on their capabilities, I love that we still unconsciously pay homage to the brothers and their father linguistically all the time. So the words cinema and cinematography, for example, harken back to that first cinematograph created in Lyon. In
0: 1982, the Lumiere family home in Lyon became the Lumiere Institute, focused on research and study of film. The Institute hosted a massive celebration in 1995 to commemorate the centennial of the Lumiere's first film. The first prototype of the cinematograph is kept there, and the second prototype was donated to the National Conservatory of Arts and Crafts in 1942 by Louis Lumiere.
1: Incidentally, um, the Lumiere Institute is now on my list of places I want to visit because they have amazing programming all the time. Uh, also in 1982, the same year that that home was made into the Lumiere Institute, the Lumiere Company, which was still going at that point, was purchased by the UK film manufacturer Ilford. And it was renamed Ilford France, although you will sometimes still see it listed in Ilford's, um, business listings as, uh, the Lumiere Uh, I forget how they they reference it, but the name Lumiere is still attached sometimes. In
0: 1998, a new theater named the Lumiere in honor of the brothers was built on the site of the original Lumiere factory.
1: And today, uh, there are Lumiere archives of film and photographs all over the world, but one of the most impressive belongs to National Geographic. They have an archive that contains almost 15,000 glass plates of autochrome images, but 11,000 of those have never been published. So there's all this amazing photography that uh, does not really get seen, but it is being carefully preserved because, as you can imagine, glass plate photography, kind of delicate. Yeah. A lot of photography. Glass plate photography made with potato starch. Yeah. Well, a lot
0: of, um, a lot of photographic media are incredibly delicate. Um, I got to go on a tour of the special collections at Harvard Business School's library earlier this year, and they had acquired the entire collection of, I think, Polaroid. And they've got stuff that is just like, this is remaining in this refrigerator forever. And if it is ever to be removed and examined, we are going to remove it and examine it and immediately put it back.
1: Right. (laughs) Or find (laughs) remove it to a refrigerated room. Yeah. (laughs) Well, they
0: they have all the things where it's like, this is the safe place that we can open this and look at this. So yeah, there's there's definitely stuff that it's like if we don't preserve this continually, it will just degrade and not be visible anymore.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a case uh, with a lot of Millier's films as well. He made more than 400 films, but a lot of those are completely gone, never to be seen again. Thankfully, some of them have been preserved, which is why we all know about The Trip to the Moon, because that is one that made it through the ravages of time. Uh, I have some listener mail that I almost feel guilty in taking pleasure in. Okay, (laughs) It's from our listener, John. It's about our Carl Tanzler episode. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. He writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, First off, I'm a huge fan of your program, and I listen to it during most of my longer jogs. I am currently training for my first marathon. Congratulations, John. You're amazing. Uh, And I'm slowly increasing my miles, which means I get to listen to more of your histories as I run. I did hit a snag, though, thanks to the Carl Tanzler's Corpse Bride episode. I remember being very cavalier during your warning that there was going to be some very gross material coming and listener discretion should be advised. Thinking that I'm pretty desensitized to hearing gory details, I continued listening. Huge mistake. The overall awful actions by Carl Tanzler made me angry, which forced me to run faster than I probably should have, and this caused me to be more exhausted than normal. By the time you were describing Mr. Tanzler's process of removing mold from poor Maria, I was nearing the end of my run. Hearing the gruesome details coupled with my exhaustion made it almost too much to bear. Not wanting to stop, I tried to focus on my run, but that super focusing meant I was also super focused on the horrible nature of Tansler's deeds. Miraculously, I managed to keep my stomach in check and I did finish the run successfully, but I'm sure I freaked out a few other runners with my occasional shiver and the increasingly pained and disgusted look on my face. From here on, I will pay attention to any warnings that come with future podcasts and may hold off on listening to them for less success, less stressful times. Thank you again. Oh, John, I'm so sorry, but that did make me laugh, mostly because you're a good storyteller, not because yeah. you got sick. no. <laughs> um... Yeah, the Tansler one is, is super gross. But I also just wanted to say, yay, John, training for a marathon is so much work. And I applaud anyone that does it. I've gotten progressively more lazier with my own running. I barely do it anymore. Um, work, is, work and life are just a little too busy right now to put in long-term training time. But if you would like to write to us about any episode that made you sick to your stomach or <laughs> anything else, you don't have to have been sick to your stomach to write us. Just say hi. Uh, you could do so at HistoryPodcast at housedoveworks.com. You can also find us on social media pretty much everywhere as Missed in History. And you can also come to our website, which is historycom where you can find every episode of the show that has ever existed. And for the ones that Tracy and I have worked on, we include our sources and some show notes on occasion. Uh, you can also find all kinds of other goodies at our website. So come and do that at historycom and we'll see you there.